Hello, I'm Mariette Sneeman. Welcome to Calm, Clear and Helpful, a weekly podcast series on taking good care of yourself and others. Introducing you to wellness professionals ready to inform, assist and inspire. Today's topic is Better Sex, Understanding the Brain-Body Connection. My guest is Katrina Buffard, clinical sexologist, sexuality researcher and speaker from Cape Town. Welcome Katrina. Thank you for having me. It's lovely to be here. To our listeners, after our conversation, it will be fun question time. Katrina, you teach people about sexual health and enjoyment. How did you come to work in the field of sexual health? It started off when I was studying uh, psychology at the University of the Witwatersrand. Didn't really know what I wanted to do as a uh, somebody in my early 20s. And we had one 45-minute lecture on sexual dysfunctions during my psychology undergraduate. And it was during that lecture I realized there were specific terms being used in line with females' experiences. We were talking very kind of cisgendered at that time that I'd never heard of, such as vaginismus and anorgasmia, because I used to hear radio adverts for erectile dysfunction before the seven o'clock news on my way to university. And then I ended up asking my other friends uh, about it and these, these terms, they'd never heard of them. And that really kind of stirred a curiosity within me and planted the seed uh, for me to kind of launch into this career. But it, 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 it was that I was also gently persuaded to go down this path when I was doing some volunteer uh, counseling work with also a clinical sexologist in Johannesburg who runs a, a highly regarded sexual health and, and reproductive health clinic, Professor Alna McIntosh. And she obviously saw something in me, the passion or the motivation and gently persuaded me and pushed me in the direction of clinical sexology like she had gone. Yes, and it's a bit of an unusual topic. I think many people feel uncomfortable when sex is discussed. How did you learn to speak about it so easily? Well, I couldn't agree with you more. I think that this is such a funny part of it, isn't it? We all do it, all of us as adults, you know, all, or not, let me not just say all of us, almost all of us do it as adults, mm. but we don't talk about it. We struggle to actually say words relating to sex. And to be very honest with you, I've come from a, a quite relaxed family, but I never had formal conversations about sex. And my comfort with it comes from studying it, going to do a master's degree in it, working within it every single day. You know, if you are a chef and you work with different types of cuisines, you become so familiar with those terms that when you are speaking about a flambe, somebody else might not know what that means. They don't realize that you know the term, but they don't. So it's the same within the realm of sex. I'm so comfortable with it because I speak about it all the time that, it, that, that in doing so it's desensitized and, and dismantled the shame and that discomfort that so many people have, including myself originally, around the word sex and around the topic of sex. You work from a biopsychosocial perspective. Could you explain what this means? Yeah, sure. So... From working from a biopsychosocial perspective means that when I'm working with any individual as a client, whether they come to see me on their own or they come to see me with their partner or partners, I am looking at the biological, so physiologically what is going on for them. 
are they struggling um, with diabetes or have they had a diagnosis of cancer in the past? So physically, what is happening? Are there any chronic illnesses? Are there any medications that they are on? Then psycho, the, the, the psychological is what is happening for them mentally. You know, how is their mood? Is there high anxiety? Is there burnout? And then socially, what's going on in their environment? What is the relationship dynamic like? What is the cultural pressure, religious pressure like? What is the work stress like? So biopsychosocial effectively means that every aspect of you as an individual will be taken into account in the way that I work with you to help you experience differences and changes within your sexual experience. Now we're coming closer to our topic. The brain plays a huge role in good sex. How would you describe this role? Goodness, the, the brain is the most important sex organ in our body. Too many people think that our genitals, the penis in somebody, um, the penis or the testicles or the vulva, the clitoris, the vagina, people believe that those are our sex organs. But the skin is our biggest sex organ, which is the most, the highest level of receptors to stimulation, to touch. And our brain is our most important sex organ. And you can think of the brain like the control center for sex. It decides, and that can be based on the context of your situation, where you're at that day, what's going on for you in your life at that minute. It makes the decision, are we in or are we out? Are we turned on or are we turned off? So it can really heighten your sexual experience, but it can also unfortunately hinder your sexual experience. But being the most important sex organ, it's also there to protect us. And so if it senses that something is unsafe, it will it will try and shut certain elements of our sexual response down. It doesn't always happen like that. But then again, it can be unhelpful in doing that. So if it, it thinks that there is a, a risk or a threat in our sexual experience when there actually isn't, perhaps we are worried that something will happen. It can kind of interfere with how we experience sex. So for, for people that I work with, when I talk to them about the brain, and, and how it plays such a massive role in having good sex or great sex or extraordinary sex. It's actually the number one part of them that we want to focus on. We don't, I don't talk to them about, you know, how many orgasms they're having and how many times a week they're having sex. I'm, I'm wanting to find out when they have sex. What's it like for them? What do they notice? What do they experience? Uh, what types of sensations are arousing for them? Is the sex that they're having worth having? Is it exciting enough? Is it satisfying enough? Do they feel like their pleasure matters? All of these things are happening within somebody's mind. And so if we can help somebody, we being myself and my colleagues, to connect their mind and body sexually, we know we generally are able to help people have a much more satisfying experience of sex overall. Katrina, what do we need to know about the interaction between the body and the brain? Well, as I said, the brain is a bit of a control center, and we ultimately want the brain and the body to to be in kind of working in tangent with one another during sex. What often happens when sex is, say, initiated by somebody, and you are on the receiving end of that initiation, you may find that your brain says, oh, yeah, this is nice, I'm keen to do this, but you, your arousal doesn't happen as quickly as you would like it. Your body needs time to catch up. And similarly, you might notice, you know, things that arouse you sexually in a moment, but your brain is going, 
oh my goodness, but I'm in the middle of a meeting or on a Zoom call or and this doesn't seem appropriate. So we need them to be working in tangent with each other. But we also need to recognize that if we're when we are engaging in sex, we need to give our brain and body time to be on the same page. Because unfortunately, very often we dive into sex thinking, I'm ready, I'm ready, I'm ready. We head straight for penetration. And this is particularly true for for those people identifying as women, we head straight for penetration when actually the body is not primed. You know, we need a little bit of warming up. You don't just put a, a cake into the oven when the oven is still cold. You wait until the oven reaches the 180 degrees you need it to be at in order to bake that cake. So, I mean, you'll, you'll hear I use food a lot as a as a metaphor with sex. I it do. Just comes together. Yeah, it comes together so beautifully in, in helping us understand because so often we allow ourselves to follow the instructions for a cake or enjoy that piece of chocolate cake and, and get pleasure from it, but we don't do the same with sex. So for most people, their bodies only catch up to their brains once they are already having sex, or their brains may only catch up to their body once they're already having sex. And I use the analogy all the time that it's, it's you have to think of it like going to the gym. You know, most people don't feel like going to the gym or exercising at six o'clock on a winter's morning, but somehow they get up and they do it. And while they're exercising and once they've exercised, they think to themselves, I'm so glad I did that. I'm going to do it again tomorrow. And then tomorrow comes and they feel the exact same way. It's a challenge. It's a struggle. It's a push to get there to gym. They have to kind of negotiate with themselves. So the brain and the body, if we can, if we can engage the brain in a sex positive way, it can allow our body space to get on the same page as we are mentally. But equally, if our body is saying that it's interested and mentally we are not, that doesn't necessarily and automatically mean we want to have sex and we consent to sex. Which misconceptions may we have regarding the body-brain connection? Well, I think that touches on the point I've just mentioned, that just because my body's showing you signs of arousal, like you know an erection or lubrication, it means you want to have sex. It doesn't. We experience natural physiological responses uh, in terms of arousal at many different times during the day or night, and that doesn't mean you want to have sex. And so equally, having not having an erection or not being sufficiently lubricated or aroused isn't an indicator that you don't want to have sex. So some people may want to have sex and say subjectively they want it, but then their body's not showing those signs of arousal. doesn't mean the person doesn't want to have sex. If they want to have it, they will say they want to have it. But I think that that is a, a big, big difficulty that um, I have to work with a lot of people on. And then the other thing is that with that body-brain connection is the power of the mind. You know, we cannot underestimate the power of the mind. We are all of the sort of thinking that we just want a pill to sort out our problems because a pill will be one, one pop and it's done. You know, if we drink that medication, then it's, it's easy. But unfortunately, our brain is so much more complex than that. And especially when it comes to sex, just taking a pill isn't going to help you have better sex sometimes. You know, there are even some gentlemen who take Viagra and it doesn't have an effect on them. And that is because we need to work with what's going on in the brain, what's going on in the mind, in order to get the body to respond differently. So 
I think that it would be those two major ones that we underestimate the power of, of the brain in how and the mind in how the body responds. And that just because the body is showing signs and signals of one way or another sexually doesn't actually indicate our subjective choices when it comes to our sexual experiences. And talking about the body's response, let's talk about the role of the brain in sexual arousal. Which hormones are released? So we get a, a really nice kind of cocktail of hormones that can get released when we are turned on or when we allow ourselves to turn to get turned on. Because you, you, we might, I think it's important that I note that you can you can stop your arousal. You know, there can be something within your environment that immediately ceases your body's response to sexual stimulus. And you may all of a sudden decide I'm, I'm not feeling safe or I don't like this. It doesn't feel good. And that may diminish your arousal. So I think that that is important for me to say, but if you are open to the, to the interaction and allow the arousal to take place, because again, our minds can shut that down, we get wonderful dosages of things like serotonin, which is the, one of the hormones and, and chemicals that makes us happy. We, are, we have lower cortisol. That's the stress hormone in our body. We experience higher levels of oxytocin. Oxytocin is called the bonding or the cuddle hormone. Um, because it makes us want to seek out closeness. It makes us um, feel affectionate towards somebody else and feel some sense of security and safety with somebody else. So again, I think it's important for me to say that the brain can stop us from experiencing these things if we're not mindful, if we're not present, if we're not allowing ourselves to engage sexually. But if we do let ourselves go there, there are wonderful, wonderful ways in which the brain, from a physiological perspective, uh, will respond. The brain doesn't distinguish between what's really happening and what we are imagining. How can one apply this to heightened sexual enjoyment? Yes, so you have to think of the brain a little bit like a magpie. It gets easily distracted by shiny objects. And that can mean that it gets distracted quite easily by an alarm going off somewhere in the background or a child coughing in their sleep or a pet barking in the other room. So all of these things can distract our mind and, and, and pull, us, pull us away from what's going on. But also the things that we are imagining might be happening. Did I hear my child cry? Was that the baby? Or, you know, what are they thinking about me? They must be thinking that I, I've got a lot of cellulite or that my penis is too small. So the brain is, is, is primitive in that sense in that it doesn't understand there is a difference between the real and the imagined. Because to use a, a, a spider phobia as an example, you may have developed a spider phobia as a young child following an experience that was traumatic. And your brain just sees a picture, a, a comic um, drawing of a spider and lumps it in the same category as the actual traumatic event. It doesn't differentiate between a, you know, a drawing, even though logically and intellectually you could say it was a drawing. The brain is going to activate the response of fight, flight or freeze if it sees the comic drawing versus if it sees a real picture. But in using what's real and what's imagined to heighten our sexuality works beautifully in the other way in that we can engage our brain in things like fantasy, imagining ourselves with 
this person who really turns us on doing things that really turn us on, um, imagining ourselves with our partners on a beach somewhere, um, you know, sipping cocktails and getting kind of really sensual and erotic with one another. And that can actually lead to the body responding with arousal. So while that's not actually happening in the moment, unfortunately, you aren't sitting on a beach sipping a pina colada and um, having some erotic moments with your partner, your brain can trigger a response in your body as if you were. So using your mind to heighten your sexual enjoyment comes in when you expand your sexual awareness to that beyond what is happening right in front of you. When you bring in the elements of fantasy and kind of use your imagination to arouse yourself further, to turn yourself on more. And I often get people saying to me, you know, but that's cheating. You know, if I'm thinking about something that we're doing, my partner and I could do when we're actually already having sex, it's cheating. And my my view of that is always, well, let's talk about how you define cheating and how does your partner define cheating. And then the next step is to go, well, what is it about imagination that feels shameful? What is it about allowing yourself to go to this place in your head, which is safe and private and kind of closed off to anybody else from seeing it? What what makes you feel that that isn't allowed? Who says that you're not allowed to go there? So I challenge anybody who says to me that, you know, you shouldn't fantasize during sex because my view is if you're engaging the brain, you are engaging it in a way that's going to heighten your sexual stimulation and your sexual enjoyment, then why not? Could you describe the role context plays during sex, uh, especially regarding physical and emotional safety? Goodness, this is such a massive, massive topic. But I think that it's such an important one to address because what I see in, in my practice and what I speak to numerous people outside of my clinical space about is difficulties with sexual desire and wanting sex. If your context, that is your mental context, so struggling with depression, you have distrust of your partner, um, you've had a really big fight and you're feeling very angry with them and disappointed in the situation, your kids are sick, your parents are sick, if things are filling up your head, if you, your mind is elsewhere, or if you are staying somewhere that, you know, you've gone on holiday and the Airbnb is filthy and you feel gross every time, you know, you move on the bed sheets, or you are, you are kind of hyper aware of noises around you or the way that the fact that the wind is blowing or that the, there was a leak in the ceiling yesterday and now it's pouring with rain. Any context that you find yourself in that your brain prioritizes over allowing itself to engage sexually is going to affect your ability to get turned on, to let go sexually, and and thus, you know, you won't be present sexually. So creating the right context in order to allow yourself to go there, to be sexual, to allow your brain to be in that sex-positive space is crucial. And you know, we make a lot of effort in the beginning of our relationships. Uh, we flirt, we we shave, we put perfume on, we wear nice outfits, we do our hair. We do all of these things, you know, like prepping in, in anticipation of having sex. And yet we don't do that as we get later and later into our, our relationships. And the, it's not that, you know, just shaving your legs and lighting a candle is actually going to create the right mood for sex to take place. But there's one context that just stops happening when we are now with somebody on a more permanent and committed basis. 
And then I think the other element is that we underestimate the context of day-to-day life and how that impacts on our willingness to be sexual with our partners. If, if we are working a very intensive job and coming home from that intensive job and needing to parent and finishing parenting and needing to be domestic within the house and our, our spouse, our loved one, slaps us on the bum on the bum as they you know walk past us on their way to the kitchen we're probably not going to receive that very well as opposed to again you know being on a beach sipping a cocktail as the sun sets as you get up to go and get your next cocktail and your partner slaps your bum it's going to be received very differently so where you are in your environment and where you are in your mind matters Im- immensely in your sexual experience if you do not feel that the environment you you find yourself in or the headspace that you're in at that time is conducive to engaging sexually, to allow you to be open and willing to engage sexually, your brain, your mind will not let you go there. And when we engage in sex, we are ultimately very vulnerable. We are physically vulnerable because we are naked, usually, most of the time. So we're at our most in our most raw state. And then we are letting go. We are needing to allow ourselves to just be then and there in the moment rather than thinking about those 101 things we have on our to-do list. So if if we aren't there, if we're worried about other things, if our body doesn't feel like a safe space for us to show, if we don't feel safe with this person that we're with, if we feel coerced or, or manipulated into doing things, none of that is going to lend itself to a satisfying sexual experience. And Ultimately, safety, whether that is the physical safety we have around us or with another person, or the psychological or emotional safety that we experience in relation to somebody else, if, if, if either of those are in question, your brain will trump the fear over the sexual response nine times out of ten. So I think that one of the biggest things I'm always asking couples when they're seeing me is, you know, do you feel psychologically safe in this relationship? Do you feel physically safe in this relationship? Is there enough space in your sexual relationship for you to let go? Do you feel safe enough to let go? What would happen if you let go? So asking people to be truly curious about their experience and question their experience from the aspect of is there is the context right? Does it provide the safety your brain needs to allow you to let go in that moment? I'm sure that when people do some self-reflection in this regard and discover that it's it's not the context is not conducive, some may find it very difficult to discuss this with their partner. Yes, extremely so. Um, it's it's very challenging, and as I said at the beginning, a lot of people struggle to have conversations about sex, and I think that you know this is this is almost endemic globally. We don't talk about it, but we all do it. And that's going to really, really challenge or or create resistance for couples developing a healthy sexual language and a healthy sexual script with one another and often requires the intervention of a therapist or a kind of mediator. I've also heard you talk about the dual control model, Katrina. What does this refer to? 
So to explain the dual control model, which sounds very theoretical and, and complex, the easiest way I can describe it is the way that a wonderful sex educator in the States, Emily Nagoski, has described it. She talks about the accelerators and the brakes. So from the theoretical perspective, the sexual, uh, the dual control model describes the fact that there we have almost two systems in our brain. We have one system that makes us want to go towards and engage with sexual things, and we have one system that makes us want to go away from and avoid sexual things. So the one that makes us want to go towards is the sexual excitation system. This is what she deems as the accelerator. So if you press the accelerator, it makes us want to go towards it. It takes us nearer to that thing. It makes us want to seek it out. And the sexual inhibition system, which is the things, the, the system that makes us want to go away from it, is what she deems as the brakes. It makes us want to stop. We don't find this sexually interesting or arousing or safe. And so we, we slam the brakes on and we try to get away from it. So the dual control model is essentially describing what happens for us on an individual level when it comes to particular sexual things. So one person, they may find that their accelerator gets pushed when there is some kink involved in sex, whereas another person can find that their brakes get slammed on. You know, in one, in one dynamic of a, a relationship, maybe one partner who really likes to be in the more submissive role, and yet their partner also likes to be submissive. And neither of them finds being in the dominant role to be accelerating sexually or to a turn on sexually. So the dual control model is ultimately there to help us understand that there are things that can turn us on and make us more interested in sex, but that are unique and individual to each of us. And that there equally are things that turn us off and that make us want to go away from sex or stop it immediately or don't turn us on. It sounds to me as if this model could be could provide a practical way to discuss an issue with your partner if you can use the idea of the brake or the accelerator. Yes, absolutely. But I think even before then, couples often struggle with, you know, specific words and language and how do we start this conversation? And to just say, you know, what what's your accelerator sexually? What like turns you on? if you'd never discuss sex, is going to blindside your partner and they may shut down the conversation. Mm. So it's got to be relevant, contextually relevant. It's got to be specific to you and your partner, you know, not generalizing and all my other girlfriends always orgasm during sex. You know, what do you think turns you on to get you there? That's not going to help at all. It's got to be specific to you and your relationship and the experience that you are having then and there. And and I think that the one of the, the best tools, you know, I speak about it endlessly in therapy, in lectures, in public talks that I give, on on media platforms, on social media platforms, is all are always about curiosity. Can you be curious about your partner's experience? Can you ask instead of assume? Can you show that there is interest in understanding your partner from a deeper level, not just from what you see is happening, but from what really is going on for them. A quick note on what I do and why I do it. I'm a content entrepreneur creating podcasts and articles for my own platform and for various magazines and digital platforms. 
My weekly podcast episodes and the articles on my website focus on emotional health, parenting, love relationships, and the life challenges we all face. Each episode and article features a therapist, coach, or other wellness professional, so you can get to know them and find an expert who'll resonate with you should you need one. After all, online therapy and coaching means we can connect across continents. Don't forget the up-close and personal articles on my website. They offer you a glimpse of the person behind the expert. If you're a wellness expert who'd like to be featured on my platform, just click on Services. Now, back to my guest. Finally, let's talk about expectations. What is your view of the false expectations created by the media and movies? My view is that it's incredibly detrimental, unfortunately. And since we are all exposed to it in some way, shape or form, whether it's in you know magazines or on Facebook or on this, the latest Hollywood film that's won the Oscars, Sadly, the the portrayal of sex is very unrealistic. It's also been particularly uh, cisgendered and heteronormative. So it's been exclusive for people who perhaps are queer or don't identify as a particular gender. So it's been very limited and it's only been focusing on performative aspects of sex. And I think that this is a massive issue. When the images and the scenes and the videos that we are exposed to only hero performance and not pleasure, they are saying to us that if you do not climax in a few minutes, then you have a problem. They say to us, if you do not want sex at the exact same moment as your partner, then you have a problem. They, they essentially often lead to us feeling abnormal. When in actual fact, what you are seeing in movies and in series, obviously we've come a long way in 2023, but what you're seeing on screen and what you might read about, you know, 10 explosive ways to make him come or, um, you know, five ways to go down on her that will send her skyrocketing or whatever. If that doesn't work or if what you're doing is different from what you see on TV, you feel like there's something wrong with you. When in actual fact, there is something wrong with those things that you're seeing or those things that you're reading because they speak to a very idealized performative experience of sex. And most people's experience of sex happens, it's got nothing to do with what happens in the movies. It's completely opposite to that. And it doesn't matter what your experience is. You are normal and what you experience is normal unless you are you know, going through something that's actually quite distressing or different from what you're used to, then it's something to look at. But if you only have an orgasm every second or third time during sex, intercourse, that is, and you're happy with that, then there's nothing wrong. Then you're completely normal. That is normal. So while I think that there is huge benefit to to the media helping us debunk myths and destigmatize the narratives around sex. If we look at a, a series on Netflix, for example, like Sex Education, which is probably one of the best series out there ever. And and not only because, I mean, there's a, a sex therapist as one of the protagonists, which I love, even though 
the portrayal of her job is not what we do <laughs> as sex therapists um, every day with our clients. But what I love is it actually addresses real issues. It talks about abortion and sexual assault and difficulties having an orgasm and a, a boy who thinks his penis is too big and somebody who gets an STI and somebody who gets touched um, non-consensually on public transport. These are all real things that we experience real, real concerns. And those are never portrayed, unfortunately, on the big screen or written about in magazines because they're not as they're not as exciting and enticing as uh, as the the short um, uh, equally orgasmic amorous scene that you'd find in a movie. Do you have a final word on healthy and enjoyable sex? I think that to have healthy and enjoyable sex, it, it may sound incredibly boring, but you actually have to be open to communicating about your sex life. You have to be open to saying what you like and what you don't like. And that means that you have to have explored what you like and you don't like. And that's incredibly hard for a lot of people who have a vulva and have a clitoris. They really struggle, you know, to identify their, their sexual needs because unfortunately, in, in a heterosexual world and a heteronormative world, men's sexual pleasure is heroed above women's, sadly. And so to be able to have a healthy and enjoyable sex life, you need to prioritize your own pleasure. Stop trying to, to host somebody else in bed. Stop trying to please somebody else in bed and focus on your own experience. So to know what you like, to, to communicate about what you like and to prioritize your own pleasure before your partner's. Thank you. Where can listeners learn more about your work? So I'm very active on social media at this, at this time. Sometimes they, I'm not so active and that's because I'm probably quite busy in my practice. But my, my social media, which is Sexology with Katrina, and then I have a podcast called Asking for a Friend, which is all about any and every sexual topic or mental health topic that we, we may feel a little bit too embarrassed to ask about for ourselves. My website is katrinaboffard.com. And in the media as well, I'm, I'm often speaking on, on kind of larger public platforms, newspapers, radio, Instagram lives, YouTube videos, and so on about, about the topics of sex. So I think Googling your name would bring up um, a great many topics. And then also yes, I'll, sure. I'll attach the link to your website to the podcast. Thank you. Now it's time for your fun question. Are you ready? Yes, yeah, sure. We've spoken about the movies and I don't know if you're a romantic at heart, but if you were asked to choose a setting for a really romantic movie... Which part of the world would come to mind? Goodness. Oh, I think that eternally it would have to be Italy. Mm. I think Italy is just from the food to the people to the language. There's romance everywhere. The art, the buildings, the, the mountains, the beaches. There's romance everywhere. And so I definitely think if I was going to set a romantic movie, it would have to take place somewhere in Italy. Thank you, Katrina, for sharing your expertise and clarifying this very sensitive topic and for, for, for reframing, I think, so many of the misconceptions that we may have and putting us on a more realistic track. Thank you. 
Well, thank you, Mariette. I'm, I'm, I'm so thrilled to do it and I'll continue to do it as, as long as I live, I think. To our listeners, it was good of you to join us. I'd appreciate it if you'd subscribe to this podcast series and rate it where you download your podcasts. And if you found this episode helpful, please share it with someone you care about. You're welcome to go to my website, www.mariehitsneiman.co.za for this episode's podcast notes and for free articles and podcast episodes. To follow me on Facebook, just search for Mariette Sneiman Journalist. Calm, Clear and Helpful is compiled, hosted and edited by me and the music is by Mart Marie Sneiman. Catch you next Tuesday at 9 